0: You know, uh, Peter Hyatt is really something of a coward. I mean, even as a little boy, I would would bump down the stairs. My mom tells the story, you know, so I wouldn't fall. I was afraid of falling. I remember my little sister in the front yard defending me against the bullies at the bus stop. (laughs) Made me feel real manly, you know. In elementary school, I developed something of a psychological disorder over my fear of germs. I washed my hands so much, they like cracked and bled, and I had to go to the doctor. I was terrified of, of failure and being judged of failure. Behind my house, there was this baseball diamond, and from the backyard, I could hear the coaches and the parents yelling at boys for striking out. When I played baseball, it, it's cool almost always struck out. To strike out is to miss the mark. In Greek, there's a word for miss the mark, hamartia, uh, normally translated sin. Ironically, I was so afraid of missing the mark that I almost always missed the mark. I was so worried about myself, I, I, I couldn't keep my eye on the ball. I couldn't swing free. I couldn't connect, couldn't play the game, couldn't live, because of fear. I think that's why I've always loved movies, you know? Because for a few minutes I could lose my frightened little self and then find myself in Davy Crockett or Superman or, or Batman. Early Friday morning, 24-year-old James Holmes stormed into the premiere of Batman in Aurora, gunned down, what, like 70 or something, killed, killed 12. He stopped the movie. Tried to rewrite the story for his own glory. And, and, you know, some will blame the movies and try to shut them down, which ironically is what the, the gunman did. Remember the last time there there was a gunman shooting everybody up in Colorado? That that was December 9, 2007. Matthew Murray shot up the YWAM base in Arvada. Then went down to the New Life Church and shot that up. September 11, 99, Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris shot Columbine High School up. So, So should we shut down high schools and mission bases and churches? Well, anyway, I'm just saying that I found courage at the movies the movies always portrayed some kind of evil and yet in the midst of all that evil a man of faith or a man of courage would set people free and for a few brief moments i'd lose my life in him and imagine his life in me but most of the time fear Um, fear of failure and check this out my failure was fear (laughs) so i was afraid of my fear and i was afraid of evil that inhabits fear i bet eric harris dylan claybold matthew murray james holmes uh, i bet they missed the mark i bet they struck out because of fear the fear, the fear, the fear turned to rage, and the rage was absolutely drenched with evil. Evil inhabits fear. Scripture teaches that Satan keeps us in lifelong bondage through fear of death, and fear of death is kind of like death it's itself, you know. Around 1987, I saw something that just blew my mind. I saw a demon cast out of a guy at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and And I'd seen a lot of weird, fake stuff, but I knew this was real. And I was terrified. I was terrified of the evil, and even more, I was terrified of the power that cast it out. I was terrified of God, and especially terrified of my own lack of faith. And now this is where it really gets weird, and and I hope you can follow this. But I'd been told that I'd be saved from my sin Saved from the power of evil and saved from the wrath of God. In other words, that I'd be saved from my fear if I had faith. And what is faith? Well, it's like lack of fear. And Calvinists, Arminians, I mean, kind of, Investigated both routes explained explain it a, a little bit differently But either way I was only saved from sin if I had faith and sin Is a lack of faith Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin r- wrote Paul so I was saved from fear if if I didn't have fear But if I had fear, I was sentenced to endless uh, torment, imprisoned in in my worst fears. And then they'd say, so just have faith. Holy crap, that's like a whole lot of fear. Know what I mean? You know, it's interesting to me that I'd strike out at school, but I wouldn't strike out at home, I mean with my friends. I mean when I played baseball with my friends, friends that I trusted uh, to love me no no matter what, I I usually wouldn't strike out. I could keep my eye on the ball because I wasn't worried about myself and I even began to kind of even love baseball. You, You know, when I'm afraid, and I really analyze it, even if I'm afraid for somebody else, I'm afraid that I'm not their savior. You see, when I'm afraid, I'm afraid about me Myself. I can't keep my eye on the ball. I can't see the person next to me. I can't hear the music in a word. I, I can't love because I'm imprisoned in me. Now, scripture does say this. It says that fear is the beginning of wisdom. But then it goes on to say, perfect love casts out fear. Like God gets our attention with fear. Maybe that's all he has to work with. And then he casts it out. Well anyway, I I was told by some, in so many words, I'd be saved if I had faith in Jesus and that thing that Jesus did on the cross. Saying that if I understood the plan of salvation, that thing that Jesus did on the cross, and then trusted that thing that Jesus did on the cross, I'd never have to go through that thing that Jesus did on the cross. And then they'd explain that thing that Jesus did on the cross as some sort of substitutionary penal atonement that they entirely understood. But uh, most other people didn't understand, uh, which applied to me if I had faith that it applied to me. To me. So that thing that Jesus did on the cross was a test to see if I had faith in that thing that Jesus did on the cross. Well, anyway, I'm just saying my greatest fear, okay, my own failures, evil, and my greatest fear was that I didn't have faith. <laughs> and fear is a lack of faith. And I was told that faith is my choice. My judgment. Well if you were here last week, you remember that I said, well stop judging and trusting your own judgment and look to God's judgment. Which by the way is that thing that Jesus did on the cross. So what is that thing that Jesus did on the cross? Matthew 27 verse 45 now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the face of the land until the ninth hour and about the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice saying "Eli, Eli, lema samak thami that is my god my god why why have you forsaken me and some of the bystanders hearing it said This man is calling Elijah, and one of them at once uh, ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two, rent in two, from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were rent, they were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And that's called faith. Well, I still remember the day in seminary that the professor introduced the next section on theories of the atonement. Atonement is a word for that thing that Jesus did on the cross. And I was shocked to find out that there were, in fact, theories. Do do I seem really loud to you? Okay, all right. seem loud to me. I'm echoing in my own head. But I was shocked to find out that, that there were theories. I mean, did you know that there were theories of the atonement? Which meant we really didn't know everything about the atonement, that thing that Jesus did on the cross which implies that we're not saved by our knowledge of that thing that Jesus did did on the cross, but but just saved by Jesus when he did that thing on the cross. So maybe it's his faithfulness that saves me from my faithlessness, my, my fear. And even if I can't fully understand it i can somehow observe it observe him lose my life in him and find his life in me find his faith in me so anyway class this is what i want to talk about what was that thing that jesus did on the cross I remember one of the very first uh, theories we learned about was from the third century AD. Origen, the great church father, articulated the common belief and titled it the Ransom Theory of the Atonement. Uh, The Ransom Theory. Jesus said the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So Origen argued that Jesus was a ransom given and paid or, or paid to Satan to deliver us from Hades. Kinda like this. You like making deals? Take me in Meg's place. hmm. The son of my hated rival trapped forever in a river of death. Going once. Is there a downside to this? Going twice. Okay. Okay, 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 okay. You get her out, she goes. You stay. slip my mind you'll be dead before you can get to her that's not a problem is it You tell that video tape got a lot of use at my house, which is good. Matthew records though that when Jesus died, the tombs were opened and saints uh, came out of the tombs. That's Hades, the underworld, the grave. Well, some struggle with the idea that God would pay a ransom to Satan. And so they say, well, God must have paid the ransom to God. But whatever the case, God pays with his own blood, right? And his blood, Jesus' blood, is life and love. So if God pays Satan with Jesus, Satan sure ends up hating the payment. In 395 A.D., Gregory of Nyssa said that Christ's divinity was hidden under his humanity like a fishhook under bait. Satan, like a ravenous fish, gulped it down. Satan gulped Jesus down. He, he gulped the light into the darkness. The truth into the kingdom of lies. The life into death. He gulped faithfulness into faithlessness. He gulped grace himself. He gulped grace. He gulped grace into the belly of the accuser. Kind of like this. i all the way up plan Whatever happens, don't let him get on the second ship. What? What are you talking about? Keep him on this planet. Okay, okay, where are you going? I'm getting my gun back. Hey, hey, Wait a minute, I'm talking to you. You know how many of your kind I've swatted with a newspaper? You're nothing but a smear on the sports page to me, you slimy, gut-sucking intestinal parasite. Eat me. Eat me. up out my face for something bad happened to you. Too late. Awesome. That's the ransom theory of the atonement, which is also the Christus Victor theory of the atonement, which most historians argue was the predominant theory for the first 1,000 years of church history. Uh, that God and Jesus conquer Satan and deliver us from hell to heaven as Moses and, 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 and uh, Joshua conquered the, the Egyptians and delivered the people from Egypt in bondage uh, to freedom. According to scripture, This world is under the dominion of evil and doomed to death. Hades is the realm of the dead. Hades begins now in our terrified hearts and continues under the earth, what some call hell. Paul writes that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. You know that? And led a host of captives free. Peter writes that Jesus descended to the spirits in prison that refused to be saved in the days of Noah and there he preached to the dead that they might live. Jesus descends into the pit full of faith. Remember Neo Anderson? It means new and son of man in in the the movies, the, the Matrix movies. Neo, the only one in the world with faith. Remember in the last one? He descends into the pit to battle the smith. That's from Isaiah 54. He descends into the pit to battle the smith and free this world from an evil matrix of lies. Is it over? Is it over? Yes, it is finished. Remember remember what St. Paul wrote? He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus destroys the darkness by descending into it with light and fire, or maybe we could say, which I think was kind of being said in that movie, Jesus destroys the darkness by absorbing it into himself. And in that way, being cast into the fire. At the start of the 12th century, Saint Anselm argued that the atonement was not a ransom paid by God to Satan, but a debt paid to God on behalf of of sinners. So Jesus absorbs our debt and pays it on our behalf. Now that's called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. And just last week we talked about the scapegoat and the sin offering and how Jesus is our goat. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would confess the sins of Israel over a goat, which was then sent into the outer darkness. It's called the scapegoat. But he would also, and he did this at the same time or before, would sacrifice another goat to the fire and that was called the sin offering. The priest would then take the blood of that sin offering behind the curtain, the curtain that separated the people from from God and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which you remember is the throne. Scripture says that Jesus is our sin offering and that Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He's enthroned on the cross, and when he dies, the curtain in that temple, the curtain in the temple is rent from top to bottom, and uh, the rocks in the earth are rent, and the tombs are opened. And that word rent is the same in both verses. So you see, maybe Jesus breaks the prison of Hades even as he satisfies the very righteousness of God. Whatever the case, he terminates sin in faith, like this. It's over. No. There's one more chip. And it must be destroyed also. cannot self-terminate. You must lower me into the steel. No. No. I'm no. sorry, John. I'm sorry. No, it'll be okay. Stay with us, it'll be okay. I have to go away. No, don't do it. Please, don't go. I must go away, John. No! be back. That's Terminator 2, Judgment Day. I vote for him, for governor, (laughs) won't you? I mean, you know, Scripture says the government will be on his shoulders. And Jesus said it, uh, all judgment has been given to the Son. You see, Jesus is the lamb on the throne who issues judgment and bears his own judgment on our behalf. He he destroys our sin with his righteousness. He destroys our unfaithfulness with his faithfulness. He, He bears our sin to destruction in the eternal fire that is God. But the way Anselm put it was a little bit weird in my mind. He said that Christ satisfied God's offended honor, which could be understood in quite a few different ways. The reformers, especially Calvin, tried to improve on that. They said that Christ satisfied the penal demands of God's justice. It's called the penal substitution theory. And for many Protestants, they've been told it's the only theory that there is. And yet when it's the only theory that there is, it sometimes gets twisted as if, as if God punished for punishment's sake more than for, for love's sake. It's sometimes communicated it as if God's justice is just the opposite of God's love. As if God is two and, and not really one. As if God the Father had to hate us. He, he had to hate us and he, and he could not love us until he tortured and killed God the Son. Kind of like tortured his son, you know, to feel better about us. And so the cross was really a revelation of not love defined as justice, when according to Scripture, in this is love. The cross is the revelation of perfect love, and God is not two, but one. God does not change. God's justice is God's love. God is love, and so the cross isn't what God needs in order to love you. The cross is what you need in order to love God. Likewise, the cross isn't a test to see if we have faith. The cross is a test so that we would have faith. It's a test, but a test that Jesus passes on our behalf. And So Jesus does what we could not do, fulfills all justice in love, and he is a substitute, but that doesn't mean that Jesus was crucified so that we would never be crucified. It doesn't mean that he sacrificed so that we would never sacrifice. It doesn't mean that he loved so that we would never have to love. No, just the opposite. He said, pick up your cross, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Love as I have loved you. He passes the test for us, but also in us and, and with us. We die with him and we we rise with him. Like we said last time, he's the goat that bears our sin, but he is also the sheep that is our righteousness, our offering. He's our sacrifice for sin and he is our fragrant offering. He bears our unfaithfulness and he gives us his faithfulness. With our unfaithfulness, we took God's life and God's life is Jesus. He is the life. And that's sin. But in faithfulness, God gave his life, who is Jesus. And that's grace. So Jesus destroys our sin and gives us his righteousness in a revelation of grace. Kind of like this. A light. Me, I've got a light. Hail Mary, full of grace. Scene in grand torino that's art they take art's life but lo and behold art had already given his life forgiven his life and that's a revelation of grace a revelation that consumes the evil in town and liberates the good You see, Jesus is the revelation of love and God is love and we are being made in the image of love. Adam is to be made in the image of God, male and female in the image of God. In the second century, Irenaeus proposed the recapitulation theory. It's the idea that Christ went through all the stages of Adam's life yet without sin. He recapitulated it. And that's interesting, for in Matthew 25, uh, 45, there is darkness over the face of the land, like in Genesis 1. And check this out. There's a tree, a tree of law, a, a, a cross, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, Could it somehow also become a a tree of life? And, And there is an Adam, the eschatos Adam, the ultimate Adam, and check it out, he's nailed to that tree. Scripture says he is the perfect image of the invisible God. On the sixth day, God said, let us make man, Adam, in our image. And this is a Friday, the sixth day at the sixth hour, and he hangs on the tree in front of his bride, and according to scripture, we are his bride, Jerusalem. We took his life, and yet he, he gave his life. He's nailed to the tree, and, and check this out, he doesn't know why. My God, my God, why? And yet, he remains faithful. He's the perfect Adam, unlike the first Adam, <laughs> unlike the rest of us Adams that tree he draws, he romances all people unto himself and we are his bride. Jesus reminds me of Faithful Wesley in the movie The Princess Bride, remember? Faithful Wesley who descends into the pit of despair for the love of his unfaithful bride, Buttercup. You truly love each other and so you might have been truly happy. Not one couple in a century has that chance, no matter what the storybooks say. And so I think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will. Isaac, listen, do you hear? That is the sound of ultimate suffering. My heart made that sound when Ruben slaughtered my father. The man in black makes it now. The man in black? His true love is marrying another tonight. So who else has the cause for ultimate suffering? His true love is marrying another tonight. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the face of the land. And then Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some think God forsook him. His bride certainly forsook him. And some think God uh, forsook him. I'm I'm not totally convinced of that, but I know Jesus felt forsaken, for he had entered our hell. He was speaking our fear. You know, Isaiah reveals that we are God's bride and that we are trapped in a covenant with death and Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for Hades or hell. And we don't know we're dead, but we are. Jesus helps us confess our deepest fear. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On, on Friday, this last Friday, I, I bet they, they really felt that fear in Aurora. Maybe you did too. In what dreams may come, Robin Williams plays a man named Christy. He dies and goes to heaven, but an angel tells him that his wife is trapped in hell. She's blaming herself for her children's death, which was, I tell the story, and blaming herself also for her husband's death, or her own death, and she committed suicide. The angel says hell is for those who don't know they're dead. In other words, they think their life, or they think life is, is death. She, she's trapped in her own fear, unable to recognize another soul, unable to perceive love or life. Christy obtains a guide and finds his bride in hell, but she won't remember him. And so he makes a decision. And he comes out to inform the guide. Nothing you can do could ever help her. This trip was always just for you. Did you come close to losing it? Oh, yeah. Pushed you right to the edge. So I had to come out now and tell you I'm giving up. Just not the way you think. Go home, Al. You tell my children I love them. And I won't leave their mother. know me, but we'll be together, where we belong. Good people end up in hell because they can't forgive themselves. I know I can't, but I can forgive you. For killing my children, and my sweet husband. so wonderful, a guy would choose hell over heaven is to hang around you. And so Christy's presence is like the kiss of the prince in the old fairy tale, Sleeping Beauty. It wakes her from the sleep of death. And because Christy, or Christie chooses to be with her, she begins to remember. She remembers love, she begins to remember life. He helps her confess, he helps her repent. They rise together, the prince and his sleeping beauty. Hey, do you remember um, the name of sleeping beauty? Princess something, princess. Well anyway, that's the theory of vicarious repentance. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He helps us repent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were here at Easter, you, you learned that that line is the first line of Psalm 22, written by King David, a thousand years before the life of Christ. It begins with that line of absolute despair and goes on to describe crucifixion and then proclaim God has not turned away. It ends with these incredible lines, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And, and they will all say in the generations to come that he. He has done it. It is finished. And so just think of this. David sang the words in some pit of despair in 1000 BC, and yet whose words were they? They were God's words, it was Christ's words. So in truth, Christ was singing the word in David as David was being transformed into the image of the Eschatos Adam in some pit of despair 3000 years ago. Well in the 12th century, Peter Abelard formulated the moral influence theory of the atonement. That Christ's death was an example to produce faith and mercy in us. Well, many view that as a uh, kind of liberal, you know, as lacking in substance because it's just ideas lacking in substance and yet faith is the substance of things hoped for and God is mercy and Jesus is a seed and faith and mercy according to scripture are the harvest of this earth and Jesus is the Logos, uh, crucified even from the foundation of the world Uh, according to the book of Revelation. he's, He's the Logos, he's the idea of God, he's the word of God, could anything be more substantive than the word of God, the logos of God. The cross is where the logos of God, literally from the bosom of the father, where the brave heart of God is ripped open and revealed and planted in the cowardly and faithful hearts of the men of this world and women of this world, men and women like me. So William Wallace is tortured and dies on a cross for all of Scotland to see. And then you hear his voice in the movie. In the year of our Lord, 1314, the patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen and won their freedom. Matthew 27:50 and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's the spirit that cries, Abba, Father, in us and, and with us. That's the spirit of, of faith, Christ's faith. Remember how Jesus said uh, to John, like in the Terminator movie, to John, he said, I must go, but where I'm going, you cannot come now. He, he's the Savior, and, and we're not the Savior. So he says, where I'm going, you cannot come now. No, no following now, but... I will send another helper. That helper is his spirit that helps us love as he loves, that is spread abroad, shed abroad in our hearts, kind of like this. Oh God. you stay, I come. The theater with my kids just bawling my eyes out that part and they're looking at me like why dad <laughs> well if you saw that movie remember that the whole world was terrified of the iron iron giant the, the whole world was trying to nuke the iron giant and in the process they were nuking themselves destroying themselves but the iron giant chose to die for Hogarth and the whole world he freely chose Love, And that choice is called faith. He chose to be Superman, super Adam, eschatos Adam, ultimate Adam. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, writes St. Paul. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, eschatos Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Well, the body of the eschatos, Adam, the Superman, rains down all over the earth. Hogarth gets a piece, a piece of the body, a bolt, and he places it in a box in his room. Today, you will take a piece of the body and you will place it in your gut. The body of the iron giant, you see, doesn't stay dead. And the body of Jesus does not stay dead. At the end of the iron giant, the the broken body of, of the giant comes to life. the mystical theory of the atonement and the federal headship theory of the atonement because you see those pieces of the body are in us. We ingest his body and become his body and his body rises and comes together in harmony with the head. And so what is that thing that Jesus did on the cross? Well, listen to the apostle Paul. God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, so check that out. Firstborn of creation and firstborn from the dead. You see, 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 we're not really even created until we're created in him and he finishes us in the image of God. He finishes us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, by the blood of his cross. At the cross, God reconciles all things to himself. So a theory of the atonement is really a theory of everything, everything that's anything. It's the word of God creating everything. It's the plot to every story, the meaning in all things. It's the perfect love of God, the decision of God. It's the judgment of God. And we must proclaim it. But we can't control it. We can't market it. We can't make threats with it. We can't comprehend it, but we can know it, or it can know us. In other words, we can know him because his name is Jesus, and he casts out fear. And he finishes us with faith. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross to see if I had faith. Jesus died on the cross so that I would have faith. Salvation is faith. So make no mistake, no one is saved apart from faith. But it's not really your faith. It's Christ's faith in you. My faith, your faith, is a gift. It's the gift of God in you. It's the mind of Christ in you. Not of yourself, lest none should boast, but a gift of, of God. I receive it as I look to the throne, and ironically, I often look to the fo- throne, throne when, I, when I'm like most assaulted by fear. You see, faith grows, faith grows in this world of fear, but check this out. The fear is temporal like this world and the faith is eternal so every week it's like we come from our world of fear and we sit in, in a theater and we listen to the story behind all stories. You know, you can't tell any story without telling the great story. Uh, we listen to the story, the story of love, life, truth, and grace. We tell the story and we look to the throne and he changes us. He, he even becomes us. He lives his life in us, his body. On Friday, The sixth day, around 12.15 in the morning, evil entered the theater in Aurora. Tried to rewrite the story. But what Satan intends for evil, God intends for good. So wherever Satan writes a story of sin and death, God has already written a story of grace and resurrection. And that's the story, the great story. You'll even hear it coming out of people in in coming days, stories of people coming together, stories of faith, hope, and love. You know, like the boy, maybe you heard this, threw himself over the girl in the theater, and he died, and she lived. I heard another story like that on the news this morning, or the man who proposed to his bride in the emergency room after uh, the shooting. The stories now, like the faith, may only be about the size of a, of a seed, a mustard seed, but they'll grow and they'll fill the whole earth. You see, what I'm saying is Jesus died in Aurora, and Jesus is rising in Aurora. Aurora is our Lord's sleeping beauty. Princess Aurora, sleeping beauty. We're his sleeping beauty. Jesus dies with us and rises in us as faith, hope, love, and life. It, it all seems uh, so incredible, and, and this seems incredible to me. So if, if you don't believe this particular story, that's okay, but at least believe what it means. Several years ago, late one night in my office, I stood over a friend holding a communion cup filled with wine. This is the part that's hard to believe, but I saw it. I heard it. I I believe it. Satan was manifesting in her, her body. She was a sleeping beauty. And he had gained access to her body through a world of just absolute fear, absolutely horrid story. But Jesus had been revealed in the midst of the fear, and Jesus had revealed truth in the midst of all the lies. And now I knew that Satan had to go, and so I had bound him in the name of Jesus to only speak truth. And I remember I put communion wine, like, on his head or her head, but he was writhing in in pain. I put it on his head, and I remember I was angry. I was so angry, but I wasn't thinking about myself. I was thinking about her, and I was thinking about the glory of God, and I remember I just screamed, Jesus wins, doesn't he? And then, in the most agonized voice that I have ever heard, as he left, I heard him say this, Jesus always wins. And then he was gone. Well, don't take Satan's word for it, okay? But you can take scripture's word for it. Does Jesus always win? St. Paul writes, at the cross, God reconciles all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. Think about that. Even when he loses, he wins. Especially when he loses, he wins. Everything, everything. That's the thing that Jesus did on the cross. But that's not my favorite thing that Jesus did on the cross. My favorite thing that Jesus did on the cross was that he gave a little Peter, a little Peter the coward, some faith. I mean, I stood over Satan, commanded him to leave, and he did, and that's faith. But you see, it's really not my faith. It's Christ's faith. Or maybe I should say my faith is the life of Christ rising in me, and I need to tell you before we end, I still just have lots of fear. And so I need a whole lot more faith. And so I keep coming to the theater and I keep telling the story that on the night he was betrayed, on the night that he was surrounded with the most frightening of all circumstances, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat. Put it in your gut. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, after supper he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it. Let it be the blood in your veins. Eat and drink. And so we invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and place it in your gut and worship. Let's worship. That's, what I'm, that's really everything I'm saying. It's really I, the only thing I'm supposed to say and that is worship. In other words, lose your life in Him and you will find His life in you. It's a commandment. Believe the Gospel. Amen. With me, amen. And so in Jesus' name, believe. Now I said that at the end of the thing there, and I wasn't planning on it, but believe the gospel, it's, it's a commandment. And you see, that can kind of create a crisis in us, right? Because there is an if. Because if, if, if you don't, well, that, then you aren't saved and you can't be saved unless you do. The if creates a crisis. It makes us ask a question. But you see, this is the gospel. The if belongs to God. The if belongs to Jesus. Jesus passes the test, and he gives um, his uh, victory to you, and that victory is, is called faith, and so this used to confuse me when I'd preach through scripture, that Jesus would always just say, believe, like a commandment, until I realized that, my goodness, that's the word of God. The same one that spoke the stars into existence, and when he said, exist, they existed. And when he said, let us make man in our own image and likeness, you see, I think he's still saying that. And so when he says, believe, uh, well, I believe it will happen because he's the one that's saying it. And this, that thing that Jesus did on the cross, that's how it happens. And it's happening right now. In this world of fear, believe the gospel. Soon the broken ground, this world of dirt and shame and fear, it will pass away. And the faith, the faith is eternal. In fact, it fills all things and makes them new. In Jesus' name, though, because you believe, right now, you are free. That's good news. Believe the gospel. Amen.